Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. A man by the name of Abera Wada worked with Christian youth in the southern part of Ethiopia. Now this was back during the communist rule of the 1970s and 1980s, and it was a violent, violent time when countless lives were lost. The authorities had decided that he had to be executed for his treasonous words. He was told by the commandant that the only way he could overturn the sentence of death was for him to deny that he was one of the believers in Jesus Christ. Well, Ebera, he responded to the commandant that if they execute me, I will immediately be with the Lord. He didn't see the problem. Abera then said as he awaited his execution in prison, he learned to sing. That he started to turn into almost a composer. Listen to his words. He said, my fellow prisoners and I reveled in the joys of praise to our God. The guards kept trying to silence us, but with the threat of execution hanging over us, why should we keep quiet? Seven men had come to Christ in that prison, and we all sang together. One particular guard took delight in mocking us, yelling at us, insulting us. He would put filthy words to the tunes that we would sing. One night, he patted his revolver and promised that tomorrow morning at this time, you will not be, you will not be in the land of the living. Well, just after midnight, a tremendous storm burst onto the town and it burst onto the prison. Huge hailstones fell, wrecking several roofs, including the one where the insulting guard was sleeping. Well, he became terrified. I love this part. He became so terrified that he pulled out his revolver and he started shooting at random into the darkness. I've seen cartoons like that. He used up all the bullets that he had promised would finish us off the next day. And the storm then, one by one, began to tear off the roofs, the roof of the commandant's home, the offices of the chief judge and the administrator and his deputy. The Christians had all been put together in one cell. Their roof never came off. They stayed dry, but the prisoners in the other cells, they got a soaking, something terrible, from the rain. Abera then said, at nine o'clock the next morning, while expecting the cruel guard to come and fulfill his promise to shoot us, we observed a remarkable sight. That same guard was pushed into our cell without his uniform by the commandant who was whipping him from behind with his belt. Other people in the background were shouting and yelling, we told this man to leave the believers in Christ alone, but he refused. And so God has sent this terrible punishment on the town and the prison. He deserves to be given some of his own medicine. Well, after some time, the guard was released and given back his uniform. And he told us, I know that the Lord was with you. I know the way I should have treated you, but Satan persuaded me otherwise. Please forgive me. 
We read a story not unlike this as we come to the 16th chapter in the book of Acts. And I am convinced that Acts is teaching us that the safest place is in, in this entire world is in the center of God's will. That you will never find a place more secure than being in the center of God's will for your life. But at that same time, the center of God's will is not always the most pleasant place to be. It's not always the place that is free from pain because it is a lie that teaches that as long as we live our lives within the will of God that everything is going to be how we want it in this life. You see, Scripture goes in a different direction and teaches that God is far more concerned about making us more like Him than He is about making us happy. God is far more concerned about us living for His purpose than He is about us being comfortable. He's looking for us to grow in His grace. Now, for those of you that were with us, we think back to our last study in Acts where we saw that Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they made their way to the city of Philippi, and we pick up our text with verse 16. Now, it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. They were headed for prayer, and a slave girl approaches them, possessed by a demonic spirit. The Bible says that she was possessed with a spirit of divination. The Greek is interesting. It reads that she had a python spirit, a big old snake spirit, python spirit. The python was used as a symbol by the Greeks to represent the god of Apollo. Apollo was believed to give the people the ability to predict future events. So if you put the two and two together, you can see where they were going. The serpent became a symbol for those thought to have the ability to predict the future. If you were seen as supposedly having this ability to predict the future, then you were said to be led by the spirit of the python. Now, in order to fully understand all the dynamics of Acts chapter 16 and what's going on here, you must understand that for both the Romans and for the Greeks, no commander would dare set out on a military campaign without first consulting an oracle to first see how things would turn out for them before they went ahead. No emperor of the Roman Empire back in that day would make an important decree or decision for the entire people without first consulting an oracle to see what the outcome would supposedly be. So a slave girl, a slave girl with the apparent ability to tell the future, that's a gold mine. That's the lottery. You just won. You have the lottery. So you can see where her owners were going with this. And this is exactly what verse 16 in the Word of God records for us. This fortune-telling brought in much gain. Now, just for the record, let's be clear about this. It is not that demons know the future. Get that out of your head. It is not that demons know the future. They are fallen angels, nothing more. Only God knows the future. But demons, they've been around a while. They've long been students of, of mankind, and they can make some pretty good guesses. So verse 17, it records that, this girl, possessed by a demonic spirit, began following Paul and his company around, crying out, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. 
Now imagine pulling into a gas station or a grocery store. Imagine pulling into Three Bears up here, and you're, you're just doing what you're doing. You're going about your business, and all of a sudden some young woman comes across in a weird voice starting shouting this out. It gets your attention real quick. Now slavery, I think we mo most of us know that slavery was a scourge in the ancient world. And demon possession is one of Satan's most hideous plans. It makes me actually think of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Do you remember in Luke 4, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. He was in Capernaum, and Luke records this. He says, Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Notice the demon knew exactly who he was. Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. See, the demon-possessed man was in the synagogue. That's an interesting situation, isn't it? The demon-possessed man was in the synagogue. Notice that the demon knew the truth. He knew exactly who Jesus the Christ is. And it's the same idea back in Acts. See, the demon in verse 17 of Acts, he knew who Paul was. This demon wasn't dumb. He knew the score. He knew exactly what was happening. And the words were true. Paul and his team were servants of the Most High God. They had come to show the way of salvation. But she did this for many days. This kept happening. It went on and on and on. Now imagine every time you show up at the gas station or you show up at the grocery store, she's there. She won't go away. And it was worse for Paul. Why? Well, it created a huge problem for him. The Jews would have, they would have looked at this expression, the Most High God, as a reference to the Hebrew God. Most of the Gentiles wouldn't have thought of it this way. It was, common, it was a common phrase that the Gentiles would use for Zeus, for Zeus. Even the expression that they were declaring the way of salvation. The Greek and Roman world was full of all these professed saviors that they had and counterfeit ways of salvation. It was quite common back then to have men and women talk of a deliverer, to talk of salvation, even to talk about a savior. Remember that the Roman emperors would refer to themselves as the savior of the people. So for Paul, this became a source of irritation. It was, listen, here's the principle, it was not good enough to have people hear about a God. And it was not good enough for the people to hear about some general path to salvation. Paul wanted specifics. Paul wanted things clear. Paul understood that when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not to use vague terms and vague references to a God, it should be a clear and accurate message of redemption. So Paul wanted men and women to hear the complete message of salvation found in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now I must think that Paul's concern, Paul's concern is that with these general, these non-specific statements being thrown out there, that some of the people would have been tempted in that day to just add Jesus to their list of saviors, to add him to the list of gods that they worshipped in the Roman Empire. 
You see, Paul understood that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not to be blended with the false religions of the world, meaning a testimony from a demon was an affront to Jesus. Paul wanted no part of this. He didn't want this sideshow of this demon-possessed girl attracting more attention than the gospel itself. So the claim to redemption in Christ, it needs to be kept from being blended with the false religions of this lost and this unredeemed world. So this is why here in verse 18 that Paul was grieved about the situation. And this is why he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Notice the immediate reaction. There was no ritual. There was no knocking people down. Once Paul, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, commanded the demon to come out, it says that the Spirit came out that same hour. Take a look, starting at verse 19. But when her master saw their hope of profit was gone... They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities, and they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Now, when the demonic spirit left, so did the money, right? The demonic spirit leaves, so did the money train. Now, you never hear anyone, I think this is interesting, you never hear anyone today talk about this poor young woman trapped, living underneath the bondage of a demon. Certainly, Paul was motivated by the necessity of the purity of the gospel, and certainly Paul was motivated by compassion, and the men that owned her saw her only as property, as a way to make money. No different. No different, really, than today, some of the girls that are forced to work on the streets. The love of money has led many, many men down a dark, dark road. But Luke is subtle in our text. Notice what he says. The wording tells us that Timothy and Luke, they now dropped off the scene. We don't think that they were arrested simply because it appears to us that Luke was a Gentile and Timothy was the son of a Gentile. So that it was the Jews who were seen as causing this problem at Philippi. And the focus of the persecution was on Paul and Silas. They were dragged before the rulers of the marketplace. Now these are actually the ruins here you can see on the screen of this marketplace. This would have been the city tribunal where the civil cases were tried. And the city prison was located not too far from it, right next to the marketplace. Luke has already given us the detail back in verse 12 that Philippi was a Roman colony. The Roman colonies, they had magistrates. And just as Luke records here in the text, this would have been two men who tried the civil cases and had the responsibility of maintaining law and order in that city. The officers or sergeants of verses 35 and 38, they reported directly to the magistrates. They were in charge of enforcing the rules of the magistrates. But notice the charges that the owners of the slave girl brought forth. They did not mention that Paul had cast out the demon. They did not mention their concern over the loss of income. The very first thing that they said was that these men, these who? Jews. These Jews. What were they doing? Stop right there and think about what they were doing. The Jewish religion was a legal religion within the Roman Empire. 
But Gentiles tended to look at the Jews and kind of wonder about them a little bit, like they were a little off. The Jews were a little strange to the Gentiles because they, they kept to themselves. They were different. In their Hebrew communities, they'd kind of huddle up. Gentiles thought that they were superstitious. They thought that the Hebrew people were narrow-minded. So to mention that Paul and Silas were Jews... Well, that was a way to awaken some of the prejudices of the crowd. Paul and Silas were said to have caused great trouble in the city. This is like being charged for a disturbance, kind of a very vague charge, not very clear. But remember who the magistrates were. It was their job to keep order in the city. And anyone thought of causing problems, they would have got their attention. So look at what they said in verse 21, that Paul and Silas were teaching things which were unlawful for the Roman citizens. See, it was against the law to try to change the religion of a Roman citizen. And they assumed that Paul and Silas were trying to convert all the Roman citizens to the Jewish faith and therefore upsetting that Roman peace that was so important to the Roman Empire. Tension was building this point historically. We know that shortly before this, the Roman emperor had just kicked the Jews actually out of the city of Rome. And these guys here, I mean, you think about it, they couldn't really tell the truth of what was happening, that Paul had commanded a demonic spirit to leave, and now they actually had to work for a living, now they actually had to go get a job or, or something. Just a bunch of lies here about Paul and Silas. But it had its effect on the crowd and on the magistrates in charge. Verse 22. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Essentially, these men had made the, it is us against them argument. They are the Jews. We are the Romans. They are the Jews. We are the Romans. They weren't looking for the truth. This was just how justice was done sometimes. There was no investigation. They worked on the emotion, the emotion of the crowd, and they responded. So the magistrates, they tore off the clothes of Paul and Silas. They stripped the prisoners before they were beaten. Now, these men were good at what they did. They were trained experts at inflicting pain. Remember that the Jews said that the lashes had to stop at how many? 39, right? But the Romans didn't have that requirement. The Romans could keep it going. In verse 23, it tells us that many stripes were laid upon them. Paul would later write that he had been beaten with wooden rods. And then they were cast into prison. The jailer was commanded to keep them secure. And notice what the jailer did. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This would have been the tightest security that they had in Philippi. And here you can see the prison that they were cast into. The inner prison right there would have been the innermost cell. It would have been the most secure place that they had. Now their feet would have actually been placed into wooden stocks, which were likely fastened to the wall. And by midnight, Paul and Silas, they're bloodied at this point, or they're bruised, their feet are in stocks but they're chained to the wall in the inner prison. And now we see how Paul and Silas respond. Verse 25 in our text, it says, But at midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosened. Do you remember the story of Carla Faye Tucker? She received the death penalty for the brutal murder of her friend Jerry Dean in 1983. After 
14 years on death row, Tucker was executed in 1998 in Texas. She'd become a believer in Christ in prison. She'd become a Christian, a model inmate. People heard about her around the world, well known. During her time in prison, she met with her victim's brother, Richard Thornton, and Thornton went on to become a Christian himself, actually, because of her interaction with him. And when asked if she had any last words before the lethal injection was given to her, listen to just part of her statement. This is what she said. Yes, sir, I would like to say to all of you, to the Thornton family, to the Jerry Dean's family, that I am sorry, and I hope God will give you peace with this. Everybody has been so good to me. I love you all very much. I'm going to be face-to-face with Jesus now. Warden Maggot, thank you all so much. You've been so good to me. I love you all very much. I'll see you when you get there. I'll wait for you. You see, one of the things that people do is they try to create an artificial happiness Oh, you see that a lot in this country, don't you? An artificial happiness. If I just buy more things, if I just get this job, if I can just do this, I will then be happy. But any place, any situation can be a joyful place, even your prison, if you have the joy of the Lord. You see, Paul would later tell this same church at Philippi, he would say what? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say Rejoice. You see, God often does a mighty work in the dark. He did it for the likes of Carla Tucker. He did it for me in my life. And now we see that he did it for the Philippian jailer. Bruised, bloodied, in chains, and singing praises and hymns to God at midnight. Christians with hope. Christians living for the eternal. Christians focused on the living Christ. Chapter 10 showed us Peter sleeping and at peace the night before his trial. Now we have Paul and Silas singing unto the Lord. But the prisoners, the meaning here is that they were listening with pleasure, like they were listening to beautiful music being sung. You see, the other prisoners, they witnessed the difference that the presence of Christ and the peace of Christ can bring into our lives. Meaning people are watching us, watching to see how we react when we have a bad day. It should be that in our darkest times, the light of Christ should shine on through us the brightest. Luke tells us this was a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken. The doors were opened. The heavy bars that would be holding the doors shut were thrown to the ground. And the keeper of the prison, he awoke. Seeing the open doors, he pulled out his sword to kill himself. If they had escaped... He would have been executed. It would have been better to die by his own hand instead of being publicly beaten and being publicly put to death at the hands of the Romans. Satan would have loved to rush the jailer into eternity by suicide. But God had something else in mind. The jailer, he drew his sword thinking, thinking that they had all fled. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm for we are all here. See, if Paul and Silas wanted to escape, they could have made a run for it right here. I would have been tempted to do that. Run, Silas, run. I mean, let's go. Let's get out of Dodge. But Paul could see this man in the open doorway about to kill himself. And when Paul called out to him, the man called for light, calling for lamps or torches. 
And then notice the wording of verse 29. He ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Just some raw emotion here, right? Paul had just saved his life. Raw emotion. And here comes the powerful words of verse 30. You know these words. It says, And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? These are the words of a person being drawn to salvation by God. And we ought to be able to give an answer to this question. Every single person in this room immediately when asked by these lost people in this world. Think of how this man had already gotten to this point. The demon-possessed girl was walking around, following them around for days, proclaiming that they were servants of the Most High God, yelling out that they were there to show the way of salvation. Paul and his men had been sharing Christ in Philippi. Word had gotten out as to what they were there for. It wasn't that big of a town. And even in the prison itself, Paul and Silas were heard praying and singing praises to God. Days of testimony. The seeds had been planted, but now it was time for the harvest. This man had reached his low point when he realized that God had spared his life. Death had stared him in the face. This man recognized his need of a savior because God had brought this man to his knees and their answer is timeless. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe. Believe is not just intellectual here. It, it means trust. It means faith. It is the same in the Word of God as receiving the gospel. You see, it is not faith plus commitment that gets you saved. It is faith. Faith and then regeneration in that order here in the text. In other words, let me say it this way. Paul and silence did not say, be saved and you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You see, John 3.36 teaches that you have life at the point of faith. Don't confuse salvation with discipleship. Salvation is a gift. Discipleship involves something more. Discipleship involves committing your life to Jesus Christ. So take the gift that God offers. This is the gospel of grace. That a free and a full salvation is given to the sinner in simply believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, why? Well, because he is the divine mediator of salvation. It is his position as God. He has the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to judge men. He is the divine dispenser of salvation. He has the ability to grant us eternal life. And if the jailer believed Christ died for his sins and that Christ rose again, he would be saved. If the people in his home believed it, they would be saved. Now, it would be natural his first thought would be for his own soul. That would be my thought. The grace of God had changed this man. His soul had been awakened. And his second thought, what would his second thought be immediately? For his family, right? It would be for his family. They might have been thinking that he was already dead. There was this huge earthquake. He must hurry home and bring the two men with him. He would have wanted his family to hear the message of redemption. So Luke tells us in verse 32, And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who are in his house. When Paul and Silas taught the word of the Lord, this man's household was there to hear it. Still bloodied, still bruised, still smelling like a prison, if you will. 
they preached the word of God. Each member of this man's family, each person of this household heard the message of redemption and responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The whole family drank in these wonderful words of life and their hearts were open to the gospel of Christ. This is all taking place in the middle of the night. With verse 33, notice the dramatic effect of this man coming to Christ. Notice the change. This man became a servant. This man became obedient to the word of God. And this man put the needs of others ahead of his own. Luke records he took them the same hour of the night and he first washed their stripes. He cleansed their wounds from the beating they'd taken. And then immediately both this man and his family were baptized in obedience to Jesus Christ. He humbled himself. He washed their wounds. He led his family into the waters of baptism. There is something so heartwarming in this passage, I hope you see it, of this sight of this tough Roman jailer gently washing their wounds. And then he brought Paul and Silas to his own home, to his own house in the middle of the night. And he sets a meal before them, rejoicing and having believed in God with all those in his household. Now let's be honest here. Paul was not baptizing babies. The entire household had faith, meaning any children in the home had to be old enough to understand. This verse teaches believer's baptism, not infant baptism. This man no longer saw Paul and Silas as prisoners, but instead he now saw them as his brothers in Christ. And Luke, he doesn't tell us all the details that I would like to see here, but I really think that between verse 34 and 35, somewhere in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas, they must have headed back to jail. Because verse 35 records, when it was daytime, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. Remember, these were the men who had beaten Paul and Silas. But now we learn they're sent with the message, let them go. Now, we're not told why they were commanded to let them go. It could have been the earthquake. Maybe it was only their intention to hold them for just one night. Maybe the magistrates of the city just wanted to get rid of these two guys, get rid of Paul and Silas, begging them to move on, become someone else's problem. You can imagine the sense of relief that this must have brought to the man in charge of the prison. These were now his brothers in the Lord, and surely he wanted to see them go free. So Paul tells them in verse 36... The magistrates have sent to let you go. So he tells Paul this. The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul wasn't satisfied. Now this is curious to me. Paul wasn't satisfied with this in verse 37. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now do they put us out secretly. No, indeed, let them come themselves and get us out. See, both Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, and the magistrates had beaten them publicly and had thrown them into prison, all without a trial. Because they were Roman citizens, this was illegal. But they had beaten and imprisoned two Roman citizens without any formal condemnation to do so. They had totally overstepped their authority. Citizenship, we need to understand that in the Roman Empire, citizenship was no small matter. Even for a person to just lie about being a citizen, that little crime was punishable by death. So with all of the emotion, with the crowd shouting, somehow these magistrates had failed to ask Paul and Silas if they were citizens. Paul demanded that they 
be shown the courtesy that was due to a Roman citizen by being escorted out of the prison by the magistrates themselves. Now Paul made this an issue. Why would he do this? Was Paul just trying to talk tough? Was Paul just trying to get a little bit showy on us? I don't think so. He could have let it slide, but there was a reason. He was leaving behind a brand new church in Philippi. And no Christians had broken any laws. And Paul wanted to make sure that this was no. See, it wasn't about Paul. And it wasn't about Silas. The church and their witness for Jesus Christ was under attack. They wanted a clean slate for the Christians before the people of the town to be able to share Jesus Christ in the days ahead. And then in verse 38, we see that the officers told these words to the magistrates. And notice their reaction. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. You would be too. Their fear was well placed because to abuse the rights of a Roman citizen, this was a serious matter. Magistrates could be removed from office for doing this. A city could actually lose some of their rights in the Roman Empire for doing something like this. And I think the situation ends with a bit of irony. Paul and Silas had been treated as criminals, but they were innocent, and the magistrates that had condemned them were the ones who had actually broken the law. The magistrates, they made haste, wasted no time in getting to the jail, asking them to leave the city. These two magistrates, they had enough. They just wanted Paul and Silas out of their town. Get them out of here. Well, Paul and Silas, they agreed to leave. But before they did, they headed back to Lydia's house to see the brethren to encourage them. And then Paul and Silas headed on down the road. Now, you may notice that Luke is no longer placing himself with Paul. And we think there's a reason. We think that it might have been that Luke actually stayed in Philippi to serve as a pastor for these new believers in Christ. And that's where we're going to find Luke when we get to Acts chapter 20, when Paul visits Philippi again. In 2005, a Vietnamese pastor known as Silas was told by local authorities that he could expect to see trouble if his church continued to operate without a permit. He was very carefully warned to watch out, to be careful in what he was doing. Now this was a threat as much as it was a warning. Because in Vietnam, here's the government that what they like to do is play games, of course. They like to deny or they like to delay permits for churches. And then when they do that, they jail the Christians for meeting without a permit. Silas shot back to this official and he said, I don't have to watch out or I don't have to be careful. God will care for us. And then he went on to thank the official for harassment and the opposition that the Vietnamese authorities had given them because it had actually served the purpose of unifying the Church of Christ. So he told the officer, he says, your persecution, it's made us stronger. And then the pastor told him that he loved him. And he said, you can shut down our churches, you can jail us, you can torture us. It doesn't matter because we still love you. Why? Because God loves you. And then he delivered the final blow. He got a little personal, and he asked the official if he felt bad about mistreating Christians. And Silas told the man he suspected it was tearing him up inside. Well, the official walked away at this, and one late night, he came back. And when the pastor heard the knock on the door, he assumed he was going to be hauled off to jail. But the official's visit was not for that reason. It was more like that of Nicodemus visiting Jesus. The man needed to talk. He was depressed. 
And Silas invited him in, and in tears, the officer told Silas how much it was tearing him up inside, having to forcibly restrain Christians from worshiping their God. But he feared for his job if he didn't beat the Christians, he, if he didn't persecute them. And the officer recounted how corrupt the government was. Positions in the government are bought and sold. If you want to advance to a higher rank, you have to pay for it. You have to buy it. Well, Silas shared the gospel of Christ with this man, and he received Jesus as his Savior. But then something else curious happened. He started to advance up in the government. He started to move up in the government without actually having to bribe anyone. And it worked out for the church because he advanced high enough to know when the church raids were about to happen. And then he could tip off Silas in the church. Silas ended with this. He said he would tell us on a Saturday that the police were going to be there on Sunday morning. So they'd show up and find absolutely nobody there. Then we'd just meet for worship on Sunday afternoon. The point is that God has no problem working in difficult circumstances. We see this same testimony in Acts. The prisoners were chained to the walls. The cave cells were shut by wooden doors and heavy, heavy bolts. These doors burst open and the Lord set the prisoners free. But let me ask you this question this morning. How many dungeons have there been in church history since where believers have suffered with tortured limbs? Parched tongues because they weren't even given water to drink. With sickness, with disease, locked up behind bars for their faith in Jesus Christ. And I can guarantee you that there was men who prayed. And I can guarantee you there was men who praised God like Paul and Silas. But no answer came. No earthquake opened the doors. Because instead they died the death of a martyr. Heaven has been silent to many of those pleas. You see, God's revelation to mankind is complete. It's done. His testimony, his written word is there for us. And when heaven is silent, God expects his people to believe his word, knowing that a day is coming when the earth is going to shake again and God is going to once and for all deliver his people. Paul and Silas could be found praising God in time of suffering because they had first committed themselves to the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Paul and Silas worshipped God because worship is not looking at yourself. Worship is not looking at your own problems. It's not looking at your problems in life and thinking about them. It's worship is praising God for who he is. Paul and Silas, they didn't make it their goal to have a life of ease. They never made it their goal to have a life of comfort. They never made it their goal to seek the approval of men. They lived to preach the gospel of Christ. And they knew. They knew exactly what that would bring. Paul and Silas endured suffering for Christ because the joy in obedience to God outweighed the pleasures of the world. Paul and Silas were willing to endure the suffering for Christ because they had that eternal perspective. So I encourage you to pray for other believers around the world who may be suffering right now for their faith in Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to know this, that even in our deepest and darkest hours, the heart can hear the melodies of the sustaining grace of God. Amen. Praise him in spite of your situation, in spite of how you feel. Praise him because he is God and he's worthy. 
praise him, knowing that no matter how the battle you face turns out, his eternal love has secured a place for you to live in his glory. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.